I'm Linda Holmes. This is NPR's Book of the Day. We've got two books of stories today that both touch on fixations. In a little bit, we'll talk about a collection from Jamel Brinkley built around the theme of bearing witness. But first, Stephen Melhauser's story collection, Disruptions, carries the mark of his fondness for taking reality and bending a part of it, a particular aspect of the way people operate, until he gets to whatever idea has seized his attention. And he tells NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer, it's okay to not know exactly what greater meaning or deeper idea lies behind one of his stories when you read it. He doesn't always know either, at least at first. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox. Discover powerful new series like Three Little Birds and BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Stephen Milhauser has a strange way of looking at the world. In his new collection of short stories called Disruptions, one is about regular-sized people who live alongside other people who are just two inches tall. The tiny people sleep on folded handkerchiefs, and they're at constant risk of injuries from chipmunks. In another story, a town develops a preference for darkness, for shadows, for shades of gray. Blonde women suddenly want to turn their hair jet black. Stephen Milhauser is with us today to talk about his latest work. Thank you for making time for us. Hi. Stephen, I use the word strange to describe your view of the world, but I actually wrestled with what the correct adjective should be. Are your stories weird? Are they unconventional? Are they twisted? Are they fantastical? I'm wondering what word you would use. (laughs) I would probably evade all adjectives as carefully as possible. I I think strange is actually fair enough, so long as it's also clear that my stories are filled with deliberately precise, so-called realistic details. I like beginning as a rule in the real world and then veering off in the direction that some would call strange or fantastic. That is a great description. And it's making me think of an interview I found that you did with NPR in 2015. You said, I'd like the idea of beginning with something common, ordinary, and introducing something somewhat unusual and then pushing, 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 and seeing what happens. Would you walk me through that process with one of your stories? I'm thinking about the one called Green, where a town starts replacing its lawns with tiles and cobblestones, and it eventually gets out of hand. How did that unfold in your mind? I had the idea of a town becoming obsessed with a certain way of behaving. I got at it by starting the opposite way, getting rid of all green things and then having them desire more and more and more. And I simply wanted to push this as far as possible and see where it took me. Not that towns do that with green or do that to this extent, but that these kinds of habits, in fact, take over communities and towns, groups of people, whole civilizations, as they push in unusual directions. Now, when I'm, when I'm writing a story... 
I am not thinking about its possible abstract meaning. I am simply following a kind of tendency or urgency within the story and working it out. You talked about your interest in obsessions, and I I actually scribbled that note down when I was reading, that you focus on obsessions, on fixations, on extremes, on trends or fads gone mad. Is that something you think about when you observe actual life? (laughs) That's a very good question. I don't actually think about that when I observe actual life. When I observe actual life, what strikes me is how little is known about even a simple experience like walking down the street, which I do a lot. And I once long ago read a book on the eye and human vision, and the author pointed out something rather obvious that nevertheless struck me as extraordinary. He said the human eye is constructed in such a way that we can never see any object entirely. If you look at a cube, you see only three sides. This is hardly surprising to any fifth grader. But to me, when I read it, it seemed like a revelation. (laughs) My God, of course, everything I look at is only half of what is there. That is my sense of life in general as something wondrously filled with all sorts of things that we don't know. You really do think about the world in ways quite different than many other people. Are you, are you aware of that? Well, as I was speaking to you, I thought, this, sound, this sounds strange, as if I'm a philosopher pondering things <laughs> over and over again. I'm not really that way. This happens within stories. Something takes place when I get an idea for a story. By the way, the, the impulse to a story, the thing that makes an idea for a story feel urgent and necessary is a mystery that I do not even pretend to understand. It's more primitive than the kinds of ideas that we're discussing here. Mm. I was torn about whether to be honest with you about this, but sometimes I would finish some of your stories and be unclear what it was supposed to mean. Do all of them have a meaning? I think that's a very fair question because I put it to myself sometimes. And whenever I finish writing a story, I'll show it to friends, then I'll put it aside for a while. After several months in a drawer, the story will come out and I'll read it again. And I will sometimes, not always, but sometimes ask myself, what does that mean? Do I like the idea that I I can't put my finger on exactly why I ended that way? And in certain instances, I may enter a revision. And in other instances, I'll think, no, what I wanted to be clear is absolutely clear. And if it moves into some territory that I don't entirely understand, that's a gift of the story, and I accept it. It's all right. It means the story isn't, isn't exhaustible. And so long as I'm not using that as an excuse for a story that that has gone awry in some way, I actively like the fact that there is some mystery, even to me, the author, lingering at the end of the story, as if that justifies my sense of the mystery that drew me into the story in the first place. 
I love that answer. So if I was scratching my head a little bit at the end of reading some of them, I shouldn't feel bad, is it what it sounds like you're saying? No, no. And you, you should put it aside and then return to it. <laughs> you know, several of your stories actually left me feeling slightly unsettled, a little, little viscerally uneasy. Is that the effect you go for? <laughs> if, you, if you have to go to your medicine cabinet, um, <laughs> I will feel guilty. And, and it wasn't I, that I bad. Pay, I will pay for that medication. <laughs> but unsettled in a way that is not just irritation is fine with me. A story that just makes you feel soothed and satisfied, you might as well watch a, I don't know, a rom-com on TV. If a, story, if a story makes you question certain things that you've taken for granted, I think that's, that's ideal. It shows you that the world is not necessarily more disturbing, but more complex than you had assumed. And that, I would argue, is a good thing. That's Stephen Milhauser. His new collection of short stories is called Disruptions. Stephen, thank you again for talking with us. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jamel Brinkley is also a writer of short stories. And like Stephen Milhauser, he says his imagination just gets grabbed by something, preoccupied by it. He tells NPR's Juana Summers that his new story collection, Witness, is partly an effort to grapple with questions that he says he may not ever really have satisfying answers to. Author Jamel Brinkley is earning new praise as one of the best short story writers of his generation. And if you ask him why he writes, he says it comes down to obsessions and questions. Something will capture my imagination. It could be a particular place. It could be a voice. It could be an image. And that thing will stay with me, Um, not because I fully understand it, but because I don't. Estranged lovers, delivery drivers, and ghosts are among the latest obsessions he explores in the new book, Witness. It's Brinkley's second collection of short stories. He says the theme of bearing witness is inspired by another writer, James Baldwin. He talks about the ways in which being a witness and being an actor are in very close relation, but it's, it's sometimes hard to go from being a witness to someone who's acting responsibly. Another fascination that's evident in the book is with his hometown of New York City. I asked Jamel Brinkley about what continues to draw him back there in his writing. New York is just a place that continues to fire my imagination. It's a place that I feel I know really well, but it's also a place that continues to baffle me and to be kind of a mystery. And I think that combination of knowing something really well and that thing also being sort of utterly mysterious to you is is um, perfect for art. One of the things that I really appreciated about the way that you wrote about New York across this collection is the impact of gentrification. I love that you wrote about, in I believe it's the first story in the collection, the drivers parading by in their eco-friendly cars and the cyclists who actually wore helmets and biking shorts who were popping up in this landscape. 
what were you hoping that the reader would take away from the way that the city is evolving? Yeah, I think there are layers to it. Um, one, there's just the fact of gentrification itself, the sense of what does it mean to be native to a place or to be an insider or to be an outsider, which I think is actually a difficult question. But part of it is just this personal thing that's happening. What does it mean to live in this place that's eroding, changing, transforming? It's, it's a very difficult question. I want to turn now to another story in this collection. It's called Comfort. And as it begins, we meet this young woman. Her name's Simone. And she's waking up hungover from the night before with a man sleeping next to her who we don't immediately meet. Can you just start by telling us a little bit about Simone? Yeah, Simone is, um, she's a young woman. And this story is set in the aftermath of, of a horrible, dramatic act, her brother, has been murdered um, in a situation of of police violence. Um, She's deeply unsettled, deeply saddened by what has happened to her brother. And the story is sort of tracking how she's getting through the days. At times during the story, you see and hear her sort of really wrestling with the humanity of the police officer in question who's called Brody, picturing herself in the officer's wife's place. What is it that Simone is trying to work out for herself about what has happened here? What's happened to her brother? What happened to her brother is is a thing that you never want to imagine can happen, you know, to someone who's close to you. But unfortunately, it's something that happens all too often in our country. And I think in in sort of a painful way or even in a perverse way, she's trying to comprehend what happened. She's trying to comprehend how anyone could do this. It was a difficult story to write. It came very slowly. I could only write a little bit of it at, at a time. And a story like this, you, you have to try to understand her. And so I really had to put myself close to her. And it was difficult. Your debut collection, A Lucky Man, prompted this big discussion about the ways in which you portrayed men and masculinity in your writing. But I have to say, as I was reading this collection, I found myself really drawn to the ways in which you write women characters, their sensuality, the ways in which they navigate relationships, how they fit into and anchor families. What inspired you to write from these more feminine perspectives or centering some some women in these stories? There were at least two reasons. One had everything to do with The Lucky Man, actually, and the reaction to that book. And obviously the book is about masculinity. I didn't want to be boxed in as sort of a masculinity writer, and I felt like I had to show that I could do more in my writing. Another reason is that I come from a, a family of tons of women. Um, my mom has several sisters, and I feel like I was very much raised by women, and I kind of wanted to um, turn my attention more to that dynamic. When you're writing, who is the reader that you're writing for? When you're putting these stories together, are there things that you presume about the people who are picking up this book and reading it? Mm. You know... On some level, I don't have a reader in mind, except maybe someone like myself. But when I do conceptualize a reader, I think of someone like my mom reading these stories. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to doing in the next few days is handing a copy over to my mom and giving her the opportunity to read it. Um, So I I think about people who are close to me, who can read a story and appreciate it and and see the beauty and then the complexity and what's going on. You know, one thing that I found sort of interesting as I was reading 
is there was a presumption that I was reading works about Black people and Blackness in our world, though you never had to explicitly say that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I mentioned myself and I mentioned my mom and, you know, (laughs) both Black readers, African-American readers. It is noticeable when you see a a work of fiction signposting when a character is not white, which of course tells you who the presumed reader is. So with these stories, rather than have their Blackness pointed to in some explicit way, I wanted it to show up in other ways, right? The the ways that they speak, um, certain cultural cues, the syntax of their sentences, where they live, the rhythms of the prose, like those are ways that you can um, index African-Americans and African-American culture too. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, just as a reader, there was almost this level of comfort of feeling in community with the characters in the book that, in a mm. way that a book that might more explicitly signpost race or not prominently feature Black characters, you wouldn't feel that. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say that, actually. That's that's exactly the kind of feeling I, 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 want, um, I want you to have as a reader of this book. Earlier in our conversation, you said something to the effect of that when you're writing, part of the writing process is about answering questions that stick with you. And I'm wondering if there was a big question you were hoping to answer in this collection. If so, if you feel like you found that answer. I don't know if I found any specific answers. I think the exploration of the questions um, has been really useful. And I think really the, the big question for me was was how to how people can push themselves to see what they need to see instead of what they just want to see, you know? then once you do that, can you act responsibly? Those were the big questions, and I feel like I explored those questions. Answers, I'm not so sure about. Author Jamel Brinkley, his new collection of stories is Witness. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Linda Holmes. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Arzu Razvani, David West, Tinbeat Ermias, Lena Mohammed, Melissa Gray, Samantha Balaban, Rena Advani, Taylor Haney, Vincent Acovino, Sarah Handel, Tyler Bartlam, Karen Zamora, and Ashley Brown. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com NPR to get 10% off your first month. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.